edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is still a revolutionary act and still necessary. Well, folks, it is 2021. Thank you for joining me for my first podcast of the new year. A lot has happened. Um, it still feels like 2020 to me. I'm, I'm still kind of not accepting that it's a, a whole new year. It's 2021 because a lot of the same stuff is happening. There's still chaos. Donald Trump is still in the White House, even though not for much longer. And it's just been nuts. Um, very 2020-like. But it is 2021, and we are only a few days away from the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Thank you, Jesus. It cannot come fast enough. Um, and we're going to talk about that because, um, frankly, I didn't have an attempted insurrection on the Capitol grounds that spilled blood on my political bingo card during the transition. Um, I'm still in a certain state of disbelief of what happened last week at the Capitol. Not surprised, just, um, just dismayed that my prediction about my worst fears of uh, what could potentially happen during this transition actually came to fruition for the most part, the, the violence part of it, not the specific act of storming the Capitol. I didn't see that coming. But um, it's nuts. And my guest is uh, for this week's episode is Dr. Errol Southers, who is a um, experienced lawman. He is a professor. He has a PhD. He's a former FBI agent, a former SWAT member for the FBI. Um, he's a professor at USC. So he is uh, a great person to talk to about the security failures, what we saw and what we can expect. Um, he's an expert on, on homegrown extremism and it's terrifying what's going on to be frank, you know, not, not, you know, you know, I don't mince words and it, it is frankly terrifying what the element that's out there and what Donald Trump is unearthed. So stay tuned for my interview and conversation with, uh, Dr. Errol Southers. It's fascinating. Um, and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> what else is going on? Um, the Lincoln Project, uh, we are still roaring ahead. Clearly, there's a lot of work yet to be done. Um, our Lincoln Project TV is taking off. Our viewership is phenomenal. So for those who listen to the podcast and also watch us on Lincoln Project TV, me and my buddy, the Rick Wilson, Thank you for your support and continued viewership. We are expanding Lincoln Project TV. A bunch of new shows are coming up, so be prepared for that. We are debuting a new show next week uh, along with the inauguration. So, um, And then we have two more new shows coming, adding to the Lincoln Project TV lineup. So be on the lookout for those. It's pretty cool. I'm excited about that. Um, Lincoln Project, we have been busy bees. There has been no rest for the weary for us um, because of Donald Trump's behavior, despicable behavior after the election. It's been nonstop. But the good news is the Georgia runoff, um, that kind of got lost because of a freaking insurrection at the Capitol. But we, we uh, were on the ground there and we were supportive of the Democrats because we wanted Republicans to lose power. And they did. Mission accomplished with that. And as a result, 
Mitch McConnell is not happy. He's not a happy guy. <laughs> um, and he's not happy with Donald Trump, um, which I'm going to talk about because guess who got impeached again? Donald Trump. I didn't have that on my bingo card for the beginning of 2021 or for the transition that Donald Trump would get himself impeached for a second time. It's, uh, it's just hard to, <laughs> it's really hard to fathom the breakneck speed in which things happen. And if you watch the breakdown, um, you'll know that, Don, that um, Rick Wilson and I often have some salty language, it's not too dissimilar from my podcasts <laughs> and being on a streaming uh, channel allows us to say whatever we want. And I coined a phrase, a fire hose of fuckery. And that is absolutely what we have seen over the last few weeks in the final waning hours of Donald Trump's presidency. It has literally been a fire hose of fuckery that has now led to the historic second impeachment of Donald Trump. No other president in history has ever been impeached twice. Well, Donald Trump can get that added to his blood-stained name etched in history. Will the Senate remove him? As of right now, the answer is no, not before his term is up. Because Mitch McConnell, despite being pissed off at Trump for a number of reasons, most of which costing him his majority leader status and the Republicans control of the Senate. But after the insurrection um, fomented by Trump, the incitement of this whole thing, he's over him, over him. The reports say that McConnell doesn't care if he ever talks to Trump again and that he, quote, hates him. Yet yeah, now, um, it's kind of funny to watch a bit. Um, but yeah, so Mitch McConnell said, I'm, I'm not ruling out not convicting him, which is very different than last time, right? The last last year when we were talking impeachment, no Republicans were on board except for Mitt Romney. No Republicans voted for impeachment except for um Justin Amash, who was actually an independent at that point. Um, different this time around, completely different. But of course, the circumstances are different. It's easier to understand. It's pretty cut and dry. The president of the United States incited a bloody insurrection, uh, attempted coup, seditious behavior. We all saw it play out on national television in live real time. Members of Congress being evacuated staffers cowering under their desks in their offices as a rabid mob ransacked the Capitol. We saw it. Now, unless you're part of the QAnon right-wing crazy Trump cult, you know who the perpetrators were. It was the MAGA folks. It was the people that Trump has been inciting for weeks with the big lie about a stolen election and all this nonsense. So, the crazies took the cue and stormed the damn Capitol. But if you are in the right wing echo chamber, well, it was Antifa. That's a bunch of BS. And Dr. Southers in our conversation will address um, who it was and the homegrown extremists that are a problem and what mobilizes them. Were there a couple of Antipa sympathizers maybe in sprinkled in that were there to see what's going on. And yeah, probably were they behind the attack 
Were they the aggressors? Were they the ones who stormed the Capitol? Were they the ones chanting, hang Mike Pence? No. So with all of that, you still had over 140 Republicans still after the insurrection, after a police officer lost his life, after a woman was shot, justifiably, unfortunately, but a woman was shot trying to break into the speaker's lobby in the middle of the melee, and she was shot by Capitol Police. Well, frankly, more people should have been shot, to be honest, the way it was going down. I mean, it it was just, it was um, insane, completely out of control. But back to the impeachment. Um, All of these Republicans that voted still to perpetuate that lie that there was some stolen election, shame on them, even after they were attacked in the Capitol. Like, what is wrong with these people? Then you fast forward, a week goes by, the Democrats put the articles of impeachment together and Donald Trump showed no contrition. More information came out about how he was delighted, according to Senator Ben Sass, sitting back watching this unfold from the confines and safety of the White House while his colleagues and his vice president are under siege at the Capitol. He did nothing and he had to be convinced He had to be cajoled, begged, pleaded with to activate the National Guard and send reinforcements. And we're finding out that he still didn't really do anything. Mike Pence had to intervene to get the National Guard. Well, that, you know, hours went by. Meanwhile, the Capitol's under siege. The more information that came out about Donald Trump's lack of response the coordination, Um, it seemed as though Republicans had enough, including Mitch McConnell. Now, not not enough Republicans, apparently, because only 10 of them voted for impeachment. Only 10 out of over 200. That is shameful. It really is. Despite all of that, I mean, if, if a deadly insurrection Siege on the Capitol doesn't move you away from Trump and Trumpism. I don't know what will. You know, they had an off ramp. They had a way to exit off of this crazy highway of Trumpism. And the majority of the Republican caucus did not take it. Which is just sad, infuriating and further reinforces my decision for why I left the party. Now, surprisingly, Liz Cheney um, was the lead, the most courageous of the Republicans and came out and said that I'm voting for impeachment. And she's number three. She's number three in the House of Representatives. She is in Republican leadership. She's the daughter of a former vice president. You know, she um, hasn't been on the right side of of the Trumpism crap Uh, many times before, but she also wasn't completely a sycophant. She'd speak out here and there. Not enough, in my opinion. But in this case, better late than never, because she knew that she would take incoming from her own colleagues, which she has, the Jim Jordan jerk-offs and some of the others who are calling for her to be kicked out of leadership. But she saw an opening because McCarthy and Scalise, the one and two, had no backbone, McCarthy, for God's sakes, still led the the floor 
battle to overturn the duly elected um, electoral college certification. So shame on McCarthy. They all know better. But they were succumbing to Trumpism because they are cowards. But she said enough. She had enough. And she saw the opportunity because Donald Trump was cratering. The response since the insurrection has been overwhelming. I just want to take a moment, a moment of silence for Donald Trump's Twitter feed. Yes, folks, that's it. The Twitter feed is gone. No more late night tweets. No more alerts of some nonsense, crazy shit that Donald Trump has tweeted. His superpower has been stripped from him. He's been deplatformed from Twitter and from YouTube and Parler and Gab and all of these crazy right-wing social media sites where the planning for this insurrection was happening. Private companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, they said, nah, we're done. It's a violation of the community standards. There's potential for violence here. We, we can't support this anymore. And of course, that's given Republicans and right-wing media another boogeyman to compl complain about, oh, it's censorship and, oh, they're taking our First Amendment rights away, <laughs> complaining. And the answer to that is no, they're not. Um, and the First Amendment only applies to the government, not private companies. Remember, they were making that argument on the other side when it came to the NFL and how they were responding to football players who kneeled and disciplining them, right? Well, it's their private companies. They can they can choose to do that. They're at work, right? Yeah. Talk about the snowflakes. These these Republicans and these Trump people are the biggest snowflakes out of everyone. They are everything they accuse everyone else of. So without that, Donald Trump has been emasculated, completely emasculated. And it's wonderful. Wonderful. So but the but the flip side of that is that the the threat, the security threat was so great that these crazy right-wing extremist groups would reconstitute and come back because they were threatening to come back and and plan for this um storming 50 state capitals and things and we're going to talk to Dr. Southers more about that. But that's why they did it. And Donald Trump, his name is toxic. As if it weren't toxic before, it's really toxic now. Banks decided to liquidate his accounts. Deutsche Bank, they've decided to sell his debt, right? He owns a couple, owes a couple hundred million dollars in debt to we still don't really know who. Yeah. They're, they're like, yeah, we're done with that. And we're not going to do business with him anymore. And they were pretty much the only bank that was doing big business with him because American banks knew that he was too much of a shitty businessman and a risk. So they didn't lend him money anymore. So it was a, you know, shysty bank like Deutsche Bank that just got fined a couple billion dollars again for some kind of money laundering scandal. And, you know, Deutsche Bank is bad news. But anyway, of course, that's who would bank with Trump, right? Even they said we're done. The city of New York canceling contracts with Donald Trump. You know, he's got a golf course there in the Bronx. And um, I didn't realize this, that he still managed the uh, skating rink in Central Park, which was one of his first projects way back in the early 80s um, to rehab and kind of ingratiated him into New York society um, and the carousel there in Central Park. They're, they're trying to get rid of those contracts. They don't want them managing that anymore. The PGA 
pulled out of the Bedminster golf course in New Jersey. They're not bringing the U.S. Open there now. <laughs> I love it. My husband predicted that Trump would have no power anymore and, you know, people wouldn't care. And he was right. I didn't believe him. And I still think he still had some pull until the insurrection. That was, that was it. That was it. That was too much for a lot of people. You give the devil enough rope, he will hang himself. And that's exactly what Trump has done. And if it were up to some of his crazy supporters during the insurrection, they would have hung Mike Pence. Because I'm sure many of you have seen the disgusting images by now of the noose and the gallows set up there in the West Lawn of the Capitol. Apparently for Mike Pence. Because Pence was unwilling to use some magical power that he did not have to overturn the election. It was nuts. So it's been Looney Tunes. <laughs> um, it's been exhausting. It's been um, disheartening. I, I, I cried a lot of tears that day watching that insurrection happen, um, watching these sons of bitches defacing the Capitol, which is a building that I still am enamored with when I drive through D.C. at night, coming home, leaving CNN studios, or even when I worked up there, I would always pass across, drive across Constitution Avenue, because I live in Virginia now, and I would look look to the left and see the Capitol, look to the right and see the Washington Monument in all of its glory at night. The monuments are beautiful at night. And that never gets old for me. It's been 25 years that I've lived in D.C. on and off, and it's never gotten old. And, and just watching that unfold, it was terrible. I was worried more people would die, and I, I, uh, I actually broke down on, on the breakdown on our show that comes on the Lincoln Project channel on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9. Um, we had a special show, and it was, it was a lot. It was just, it was a lot. You know, I spent seven years up there on Capitol Hill, and even now the images of the National Guard, 20,000 National Guard troops being sent to D.C., militarizing, basically, the Capitol, and looking at National Guardsmen sleeping in, on the floor in the hallways of Congress on the floor of the Capitol Visitor Center. Oh, God. This was Donald Trump's America, and 74 million people voted for four more years of this, this crazy. Thank God more of us voted against it. But it worries me. It worries me what the country looks like with all of these people. You know, I mean, how Donald Trump's approval numbers aren't at like 10% um, is beyond me. It says a lot about where our country is and how divided we are. But I tweeted something out after I listened to the floor speeches, pro and con, you know, for the impeachment proceedings. And so many of these, these spaghetti-spined Republicans unwilling to take a stand, even though they know they were threatened, they were worried about their lives. They know that this is wrong. They know Trump was responsible for it. But the reports were that, well, these members were scared. They were afraid for their families, that their, their families would be harmed by these crazies. I'm sorry, but that is not an excuse. It's a good thing this Republican Party, the, the makeup of this Republican Party, wasn't around during the Civil War. Because guess what? <laughs> the South would have won. I mean, you, you don't take a stand for what's right for the, your country. You don't take a stand against this kind of tyranny because that's what those people wanted. That's what Republicans are supposed to be about, remember? Screaming and worrying about Democrats and socialism and Antifa and the left and Venezuela. Blah, blah, blah. Well, what the hell do you think is happening under Donald Trump? 
My God. So the Republican Party will forever go down in history now, the 21st century Republican Party, etched in history as the party of sedition, illiberalism, anti-democracy, and cowardice. Because when it came time to stand up against those things, they did not. Only 10 of them did. One I want to point out besides Liz Cheney, who actually gave a pretty, a pretty um, straightforward statement, I have to admit. Um, you know, her final line, she said, there has never been a greater portrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. That sums it up. Representative Herrera Butler of Washington, Republican, she said in, clo- in her closing statement in support of her vote for impeachment, Republican, she said, I'm choosing truth. It's the only way to defeat fear. Bravo. 100% right. Here at Honestly Speaking, we're all about truth. Yes. <laughs> Adam Kinzinger, who is um, a Republican who, you know, he, I always liked Kinzinger. I thought he was one of the, you know, future young guys of the Republican Party. And there were a couple times that he sided with Trump or made excuses for him over the years. And I wasn't happy about it. But he started drifting further away. You know, he's a military guy. So even though he didn't vote for impeachment last time around, he should have. Um, he's always kind of been a bit more outspoken than others. And, you know, he voted this time around and said, yeah, this guy's got to go. He said, um, never got, I never got into this to build some political empire. I did it to do the right thing. Talking about, um, being a member of Congress. Good for them. And eight, their eight other colleagues who voted with them, who voted on the side of democracy on the side of the constitution, on the side of rule of law, on the side of you have to pay a price when you're involved in a potential coup attempt on the government. That sedition is not okay. Insurrection is not okay. I mean, this shouldn't be hard. And yet, 197 Republicans voted against impeachment. What happens next quickly? Well, it goes to, they send they send this over to um, the impeachment articles over to the Senate. Uh, Mitch McConnell does not lose his um, control of the Senate until the other two new senators, Warnock and Ossoff, are sworn in. Georgia's still going through their certification process. And um, Joe Biden becomes president on the 20th. And um, they can still try him in the Senate even after Trump is out of office. Now, you're thinking, why the hell would they do that? Well, even though they can't remove him, because he'll he'll already be gone, but what they can do is stop him from running for office ever again. It disqualifies him. And he also loses the benefits of the post-presidency. That sounds good to me. That sounds like it's worth it for him to do that. So he's losing his businesses. He's losing his Trump name is toxic. And he would not be able to run again. And why would Mitch McConnell do that? Why would 17 Republicans, which is what they would need to convict him, why would they go along with this? Because there's plenty of them that don't want Donald Trump around, hanging around, giving them headaches for 2024 because they have presidential ambitions also. And plus they just really wanna move forward, right? 
We need move past this. We'll have a commission. Do all of that. But there needs to be consequences, accountability. Then we can talk about unity. Until then, I don't want to hear shit about unity from Republicans. Impeachment was not dividing this country. It was defending her. That's why impeachment was necessary. And I'm glad that it happened. Sad, but glad. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, (laughs) I think that they have really stepped in it with their support of the hijinks and the political theater and the insurrection talk and all that. They're in trouble. More companies are saying that they're not going to donate money to these campaigns, to any Republican who voted against certifying the election. Good. Josh Hawley's getting raked over the coals, lost his book deal, his hometown paper called for him to resign. His political mentor, Senator Danforth, said it was the worst political decision he's ever made supporting Josh Hawley and he regrets it. Yeah. He's a pariah and should be. A couple of these members of Congress who were involved with these lunatics who planned this, quote, stop the steal march. Mo Brooks screaming, let's go kick some ass the day of the rally before the insurrection. Paul Gozar palling around with this crazy guy named Ali Alexander, who was bragging on Periscope that he was one of the organizers of this thing. Now he's running from the feds, apparently, on the lamb. Maybe they'll catch him. They should. Crazy thing is that I I know Ali. Um, he was always a little kooky, but he was, you know, in the conservative movements. I would see him at the CPAC events and things over the years, years ago. And then he took a really dark turn and became like a Roger Stone acolyte and Infowars and QAnon conspiracy theories. And he just sounds like an absolute freaking lunatic now. And he should be arrested um, and prosecuted for his role. And so should these members. The 14th Amendment, Section 3 of the Constitution talks about if you're involved in an insurrection against the government, you can be booted out of office. (laughs) A lot of people don't know that. Well, they know it now because there's talk of it. Representative Mikey Sherrill from my home state of New Jersey, Democrat, she's calling for a commission to be set up and investigate if other members of Congress were involved in helping these rioters um, do recon, you know, giving them tours of the Capitol and everything else days before the the uh, the insurrection. Were they in on it? What was happening? This is crazy. They had to set up metal detectors outside of the House floor. Republicans are being intransigent, some of them, refusing to go through them, shoving Capitol Police officers. Why? You don't have anything to hide. It's nuts. So this, you know, this new Congress is starting <laughs> starting off very eventful. And I don't know how you how you govern when you don't have trust in your colleagues. So, you know, any trepidations I had about Democrats having full control of everything, that's out the window now. Because Demo- uh, Republicans have lost any authority to govern right now till they regroup, if they even can, honestly. The cowardice. I just still can't believe only 10 Republicans after everything that happened <laughs> voted for impeachment. It's nuts. The insurrection, like I said, um, I'm going to bring in uh, Dr. Southers here in a minute. Um, a lot has been learned. Um, you know, lives have been lost. People have been arrested. 
Things have been uncovered that are very disturbing. Federal authorities are um, concerned about the threat to the inauguration. And we have yet to hear from any high-level officials as of the recording of this podcast on January 13th that um, we haven't heard from the FBI director. We haven't heard from the acting AG. Where are they? We got a briefing from the Washington field office guy of the FBI and the uh, acting U.S. attorney here. Well, that's wonderful. But why haven't we heard from higher level officials? This is a big freaking deal what happened. A big deal. And there were plans to do way worse than just go there and riot and cut and break a couple windows. But without that level of attention, it, it, it feels like it's less serious than what really happened. So is this the security failure? I don't think we're going to see that level of a security failure again because now the Secret Service has taken over. It's um, designated a, a national special security event like the Olympics or the Super Bowl, stuff like that. So the security now, like I said, D.C. looks like a military zone, unfortunately. But still, they're talking about 50 state capitals trying to replicate this. I mean, it's it's nothing to mess around with. And I think that um, we have to stay vigilant and pay attention and um, and pray that these these crazies are held at bay because they're not going away. But when you have a wounded leader, perhaps that dissuades them from going forward or it could be the opposite. They think that he's a martyr now and they're doing this in the name of their country and of their leader. I don't know. But you know who does know? My guest coming up right now. Let's bring him in. Dr. Errol Southers. I am absolutely thrilled with my first guest on the new season this year for 2021 of Honestly Speaking with Tara. Um, I had an opportunity to interview Dr. Southers on our Lincoln Project show, The Breakdown, recently. And I just thought that the conversation was so robust and interesting and informative that bringing him on in a more long form format here on the podcast was an absolute must considering the environment that we're in now. Um, Dr. Errol Southers has a resume for the ages. If you want to talk about someone who is credentialed, who is um, honored, who is learned and experienced in the area of law enforcement, both domestic and counterintelligence overseas, Dr. Errol Southers is the guy. Um, he not only is he uh, ha does he have a PhD, thus the doctor, but he also spent years in the FBI in counterintelligence, and he's a badass. He was on the FBI SWAT team. So among his myriad of accolades and experiences, um, I think that his experience in the area of, of counterintelligence and as well as infrastructure and um, protecting um, infra critical infrastructure and planning major events is what we need to hear about today, given the environment we're in. Dr. Errol Southers, thank you for joining me and welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Really appreciate it. 
Well, I am jealous that you are out there in sunny Southern California because you are a professor out there at USC and uh, you also are the director of the Safe Communities in, uh, Institute and home of home and homegrown extremism out there. And um, I used to spend a lot of time in Southern California when I worked for Congress and Rohrabacher. Um, it's one of the most beautiful places in the country and I'm jealous that you're there and I'm on the East Coast. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I'll be thinking of you and Honestly, when I moved here, I never looked back. <laughs> so uh, the words spoken by many who have le left the East Coast for warmer pastures there on the West Coast. Um, but if I wasn't impressed enough with you before and, and didn't um, love you enough after we interviewed you, you are from New Jersey. I am a proud Jersey am. girl and everyone knows that. So when I saw <laughs> that you were from not only from New Jersey, but you are from North Jersey. You're from Elizabeth, That's right? right? Exit 136, uh, <laughs> went to Scotch Plains Fanwood High School. There you go. There you go. I'm from Paramus, exit 163 off the turnpike. So uh, we are kindred spirits in that as well. Um, oh, God, Dr. Southers, we are in an awful place in this country right now. One I predicted, but never to this degree. And after that assault, on January 6th, the insurrection at the Capitol, which ended up in bloodshed. We find ourselves approaching the inauguration at a threat level unlike many have ever seen before, if ever, in our lifetimes. What have you learned? What have you learned since last week that has alarmed you the most? Well, Tara, the most alarming information from last week is what I thought was perhaps the level of complicity by law enforcement officials that were present that has now grown into complicity and perhaps conspiracy with members of Congress itself. Mm -hmm. As recent as this morning, hearing that rioters were not only prepped but had taken a tour of the Capitol before, and you're like me, I've been there many times, you get lost in the Capitol in one minute. That's true. <laughs> I was there for and, seven years and I still got lost. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the worst thing I'm hearing today is that Representative Ayanna Presley, her chief of staff is reporting that the panic arrest buttons that had been in her office had been ripped out. And she's absolutely positive they were there because as they have had numerous shelter in place drills in the Capitol, when they were under the desks on January 6th, she said not only were the buttons gone, the entire devices had been removed. That is extraordinary. Is it, did she, was she referring to them being removed during the attack on the Capitol or since then or before that? What was the timing she, on it? She is, she is suggesting or alleging that they were removed before January 6th. So somewhere between their last shelter in place drill and last Wednesday, they were actually taken out. But she'd have no reason to necessarily check for it because there was no reason to be under your desk. Right, right. That day. <laughs> right, and I can confirm as someone who spent a lot of time hanging out in the congressman's office uh, after hours, I would often come in and do work or you know, I would sit at his desk during meetings sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, and yes, there is a panic button under the desks of members of Congress. That is true in case of mm -hmm. an emergency. 
So that's wow. the most troubling information I have now is the level of com complicity and or possibly conspiracy with law enforcement and members of, of the Congress. When we last spoke on the breakdown, it was the day after, and we were concerned then about some of the things that we had seen, some of the video images and information that was coming out about the possible complicity of law enforcement. And, um, you know, that that is our worst fears come true in a situation like this, right? Because we assume that those are the people there to protect first. Um, and finding out that there was, as of right now, there's up to 15 Capitol Hill police officers under investigation. A couple of them have already been suspended. A Secret Service officer with the, a sergeant with the uniform division assigned to the White House is also under investigation for posting pro-Trump, pro-insurrection um, type of posts on social media, congratulating the people, calling them patriots, and saying that it's now it's time for us to go on offense. Mm -hmm. um, how much of a problem is this? Well, this is an interesting question. It's a very good question. And so historically, back in 2006, the FBI issued a report with regards to the level, the extent of white supremacists, white nationalists infiltrating law enforcement. What's interesting is that in 2009, Secretary Napolitano, who was Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security at the time, their intelligence and analysis unit produced a report and I happened to be President Obama's nominee at the time, and I wish I could have spoken to the secretary before she released it, because the title of that document was White Right-Wing Extremism. And I said, that's going to be dead on arrival, and it was. It went mm -hmm. so far as to suggest that white supremacist organizations were looking to recruit police officers as well as returning members of the military from fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan because of their skill sets. Well, needless to say, the report was withdrawn the unit was disbanded. The secretary responded to um, Speaker Boehner in the House, and it all, they thought, went away. Several months ago, that FBI document surfaced again, more lightly redacted, but to say the FBI now believed that the infiltration of law enforcement was about 10 times worse. Hmm. What happened after we spoke last week, the Seattle police chief came out publicly, had a press conference and said, if any of my people were involved in that insurrection, I will fire you on the spot. We talked about the two of us living here in Southern California. Chief Moore has announced that at least one LAPD officer was there. Um, he suggests that he was there, but when the when the issues when the riot started, he went back to his hotel room. So I'm going to leave that there. Um, but more importantly, what was really interesting is that the New York Fire Department really kicked it off. Uh, they had a couple of people come forward to say they were there and they were working with and, and cooperating with the FBI. So now you've had law enforcement agencies across the country basically saying to their people, if you were there, we need to know. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be working with the FBI. So this is a huge problem. We've seen it before. Uh, again, speaking about your old hometown, um, the L.A. Sheriff's Department for decades has had officers accused of being in those kinds of organizations, having tattoos, engaging in certain activities to, if you will, solidify their membership. So this has been a longstanding problem in America back to the days when the FBI and 
was investigating the Klan, and they had to deal with the sheriffs who on their off-duty time were wearing hoods and robes. So we have a huge problem. You know, I, um, I remember when the report came out in 2009 from the Department of Homeland Security, um, <laughs> and that you referenced and uh, Republicans, you know, I worked for a Republican member and I remember going along with the idea that, oh, what you know, why are we focusing on patriotic Second Amendment rights folks? You know, you're you're just trying to to shift away from the focus of um, far the foreign threat of radical Islamic terrorism. I was caught up in that, too. And mm -hmm. I remember the pressure on getting that report um, tabled. Right. And that was uh, a mistake, an absolute mistake, given what we know. I mean, recently we had former FBI agent uh, Michael German mm -hmm. on with us on The Breakdown, who has been a, a real critic of the FBI's approach post 9-11, what he calls the new FBI. Mm -hmm. And he said that, you know, the focus was misguided. And because the focus turned so much to the foreign threat that it was de-emphasized the growing domestic terror threat on the home front. And you have a PhD in this. You did your dissertation on homegrown violent extremism. Can you talk a little bit about um, where we've missed the mark and the threat we face now, considering the just how they've kind of come from the underground into the mainstream with the rise of Donald Trump? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and again, you know, Michael German and I are very close friends and, and colleagues. I've had him at USC a number of times, especially with his new book that came out last year. Mm -hmm. So how did this happen? We, we break down homegrown violent extremism into three different categories. Those people who are motivated by racial extremist ideologies, religious extremist ideologies, and what I call issue-oriented ideologies. By issue-oriented, I mean anti-government, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, anti abortion. I call it, of course, the anti-category. <laughs> and those are the three categories. But what makes this more challenging now, Tara, is another group that is basically a hybridized version of one or more of the three. I testified in the first and only hearing in the Boston Marathon bombings in front of the full House Homeland Security Committee. And when I was there, I cautioned them that although the Sarnayev brothers were adherents to ISIS, when we served search warrants on Tamerlan, who was killed after the attack, we found out that he was not an ISIS neo-Nazi supporting individual who was also a Holocaust denier. So I cautioned them. I said, look, this is not a monolithic type of challenge that we have here. And understand something. Those two guys had lived in the United States for 10 years. They are not foreign terrorists. They are homegrown. They radicalized themselves here. Mm -hmm. So we missed the mark because we were so, as you mentioned, so laser focused on what I call the other, you know, another religion, another ethnicity, another nationality that we took our eye off the ball. We had a building come down in 1995. We treated Timothy McVeigh as the as the aberration. And by the way, Timothy McVeigh, although he killed 168 people in 1995. He was never charged with terrorism. He was charged with using an explosive device at a federal building and 168 counts of murder. So again, we were in denial. So as we've seen this tick up over the last 10 to 15 years, and, we've, and I've been saying, like many, look at the data. Look at the data. Look at the number of attacks that have happened in the last decade. The ADL does the best job 
of tracking this information. 76% of the domestic attacks were right-wing extremists. Just look at it. And by the way, those police officers who are out there who think that these people are their friends because they're waving Blue Lives Matter flags, more than 75% of the extremist-related shootouts with police officers have been with the right wing. So this has been out in the open. I use a saying at our center by a famous data scientist named W. Edwards Deming. And basically he used to say, without data, you're just somebody with an opinion. And I would say, look, I'm willing to have a conversation with you, but show me some data that suggests what we're telling you is incorrect. And that was never the case. You know, I don't think enough people understand this. You know, it's really been um, swept under the rug how prevalent this problem has been and for how long. Um, you know, unless you're into this, right? <laughs> unless you're in this space or paying mm -hmm. really, really close attention, people don't really understand how uh, um, how much of a threat this homegrown extremism really has become. Um, and it because the focus has been so much on the other and this administration certainly changed direction even more so don't pay attention to that you know pay attention to this over here the you know the brown people the brown menace as chris cuomo says all the time coming from the southern border the muslim mm -hmm. ban um you know these people here are gun-toting patriots and you know they love america <laughs> it's um it's pretty extraordinary to see the security lapses as a result of it and and some of the intelligence failures because it's not it hasn't been a priority Miles Taylor, who um, was anonymous and he was the former DHS chief of staff and he was on the podcast uh, a couple months ago telling me some horrific anecdotes about what he experienced at the DHS and in the Oval Office, some of the requests that Donald Trump made against American citizens and on um, the southern border, just uh, things people wouldn't uh, imagine. I suggest if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the failures over the years of this, particularly over the last five years, um, I mean, four years under Donald Trump, um, have really led up to this, no? Yes, they have. And, and to your point, the reason that they went down this path and it was so easy is, 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 a, is twofold. Number one, we don't ever want to believe that Americans would kill Americans, especially being ideologically motivated. So we are in denial there. And number two... This has been brought about by the fact that we're going to be a minority-majority country by 2045. About eight years ago, when I used to visit some of the right-wing extremist websites, some of them had time clocks, elapsed clocks on their homepages because at, at that time, the calculation was 2050. They were counting down to the year 2050 for how much time they had left. They call themselves accelerationists. And so whereas years ago, the accelerationists would say, you know, we need to we, we're going to accelerate ourselves into the bottom of society. We're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our home. Um, they then decided that they needed to go on the offensive to make sure it wouldn't happen. Well, what's the most important thing to them? Stop the immigrants from coming in. If we can stop the flow, we can slow down the clock. And so when the president descended <laughs> his building on the escalator that day and comes forward with the first thing that he's going to propose in office is a Muslim ban. He was, the, the, the dog whistle could not have been any louder. Right. And then right. to propose a wall was exactly what they wanted to hear. So nothing is done by mistake. At the same time, as we talked about before, 
you know, to have a slogan like America First, which was a slogan of the Klan for many years, and a slogan by David Duke when he ran for public office in 2016, again, the dog whistle was loud. But what's really interesting, as, we, as I talked about the Boston Marathon, this homegrown threat is not unique to the United States. I also teach at the University of Paris. I've been teaching in, in Israel for 15 years as well. But let's just talk about Europe. The challenges that they have in the UK and France, those guys who attacked, for example, uh, Charlie Hebdo, those guys were born in France. Now they were Islamists, but they were born there. Mm -hmm. The attacks we saw in London in 2005, they were born there. So this is not an American phenomenon. The only difference is the right-wing extremists they have in their countries are as robust as they are here, except we have the Second Amendment, which people seem to think allows them to carry a gun into their local convenience store. Um, and we have that to deal with as well. So we have an exacerbated problem, but not only the ideology, but the proliferation of weapons across our country. We have, we have more weapons per person in America than they have in Yemen. That is... Um... That puts it in perspective, right? <laughs> and and you're not exactly a you know uh, an ACLU anti-gun carrying you know left wing crazy here. <laughs> no, I right. It, You've carried a couple guns. <laughs> yeah, admittedly, if you do a if you look at how many guns are in America per household, I do kind of tip the scale a bit. <laughs> right, right. So uh, it's important for people to hear that from someone who. Um, is a full believer in the Second Amendment and the right to, you know, bear arms lawfully and responsibly, you know, mm -hmm. that there are limits to this that have not been um, seriously discussed on the on the Republican side of the aisle for a long time for fear of the gun lobby and the Second Amendment rights people coming out and freaking out about it. I mean, I remember, I mean, the idea of they're coming for your guns, they're going to confiscate your guns. And that's one of those fear tactics and motivating uh, tactics that get people out to vote. Well, that Tara, the, the right's been exploiting for years and it's and it, look what it's created. It's nuts. You're right. Let me go back again. I'm, I keep bringing you back to California as much as I that's can. All right. Um, but just 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 to be clear, I didn't grow up in California. I grew up oh, in New I, Jersey. I, I just spent time there when I would go back to the district with the congressman every couple of times, you know, a few times a year and got to spend time there. But so my hometown will always be Paramus, New Jersey. I'm proud I hear Jersey you. <laughs> my hometown will always be a little bit. <laughs> But I want to I want to just have your listeners understand, while we always deem California to be very progressive and the fact that we are not an open carry state, it's not because we were progressive. It's because black folks were armed. The Mulford Act in California came about because of the Black Panther Party and the Black Panther Party in the 1960s after numerous incidents of police abuse across the country decided they were going to do their homework and realized they could open carry rifles and shotguns in public. So they decided we're going to police the police and they would show up on traffic stops, black leather jackets, black berets, shotguns, rifles, and they would tell the person stopped by the police, we're here to watch you. And there was nothing illegal about it. Well, that was obviously met by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, right. the, F the Black Panther Party of Terrorist Organization. And then Assemblymember Mulford went to Governor Reagan and said, we can't have this. And in one afternoon, and I share this story with you because I happened to meet Bobby Seale years ago, and he told me the story because he walked in to challenge 
the law that was going to repeal it, in one afternoon, the Mulford Act was passed in California where you could no longer open carry, and it was supported by the NRA. <laughs> That's interesting. I did not know that historical context. Yeah. So we can be... We can address gun violence and weapons depending on who's carrying the weapons. Well, that's a good segue into the response and the difference in the response um, to what happened on January 6th versus what happened over the summer with Black Lives Matter protests here in Washington. Um, you know, it's an uncomfortable conversation for people, for white America, to admit that there is this level of racial injustice within our law enforcement and justice system, um, it was even difficult for me to have to admit to after years of um, defending law enforcement and telling people that, you know, oh, you know, it's not always race all the time, you know, and I have to admit that I was wrong about some of that. Um, and the actions of this administration and, and what it's unearthed has just been eye-opening for me on, on a lot of levels. And in this one, you know, it hurts my heart to admit it, but there was clearly uh, a disproportionate um, response in to BLM versus what we saw on January sixth. Uh, I just, I just would like you to explain, as someone who has participated in planning for major events, um, what should have happened on January sixth that did not happen versus what we saw with the capabilities. Uh, against Black Lives Matter over the summer, and why? Well, that's a great question. And let me answer, answer your question by starting with some data as we talk about Black Lives Matter. There was an interesting Harvard study that was done over the summer that an analyzed 7,305 protests across America. In 96% of those incidents, there was no violence or vandalism that, had, that took place. So I always want to make sure people are clear with regards to the fringe element at those events that cause a whole lot of damage and destruction. A little over 3% occurred in over 7,000 incidents as documented by Harvard. And I would suggest that people take a look at that. They should have had, but to answer your question, this should have been handled as a national security um, special event, what we call NSSE. And that means we're talking about Super Bowl, inauguration, NASCAR, national championships in most sports level of security that the Department of Homeland Security undertakes weeks, if not months ahead of time to look at every possible international or domestic threat that could happen. With that, the sharing of intelligence information, determining what the intelligence is actionable and going out and having conversations or investigations with those possible threats or issues to find out how bad it is. Now, the challenge here, Tara, is that, as we found out in the last week, months before the Capitol riot, the DHS threat assessment was gutted by this administration. So that normal unit that would have collected and analyzed intel was unable to do that because they basically didn't exist. In fact, they sent the head of that organization, this head of that unit, to another division. They removed him. So they didn't have the ability to do that. On top of that, the FBI issued warnings before to say that they had intel to suggest a war was going to happen on January 6th. 
So you had people ignoring the threat. I did an interview the other day, and he used a really interesting term. You know, there's this assumption of white innocence when people are protesting and they're not people of color. And unfortunately, that white innocence carried over to the law enforcement personnel that were responsible and the law enforcement personnel that were operational that day and actually wound up being victimized by those people who showed up to protest. That is absolutely infuriating. And um, I know what uh, what outlet it was where you had that conversation. It was Foreign Policy Magazine. And uh, you did an excellent interview where you called the event Charlottesville on steroids, <laughs> which I thought was an appropriate um, uh, description given the the types of people who were there, the ideology behind what motivated the people who were there, um, and the similarities between um, what happened there and what happened in Charlotte because it was just scaled up, basically. Charlotte was Charlottesville was just a, a preview yes. to what we were what we saw on January sixth, and yes. you know to think that that our our federal capabilities have been gutted by this administration and it could have been prevented um, is just another reason why the impeachment and removal of Donald Trump, I don't give a damn if it's 10 minutes before he's supposed to leave office, <laughs> is so critical because not only did he incite this and had been for months, years, arguably, um, but in the immediate run up to this, but he sat back reportedly, delighted as he wanted to be in the White House because his people were fighting for him and didn't do anything. He let this go. That have you ever in your experience, in your decades of law enforcement experience, in your you know, experience of um, coordinating with uh, other agencies for major events like the Olympics and the inauguration? Have you ever seen anything like that where a president of the United States would sit back and allow that type of insurrection and attack on the Capitol happen? Needless to say, I have never seen that. Nor would I ever think that a president would even think that much less acted out. You know, the one thing that I say about the men and women that serve in this country, whether it be local, state or federal law enforcement, you know, I'm a classic example of people who, who have served in this country. I served in a Republican governor's administration. I was appointed, I was nominated by a Democratic president. And I used to always say to people, it didn't matter to me who was sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I had sworn an oath to protect this country and enforce the Constitution regardless of the threat. So that we would have a president that would knowingly not just watch it happen, but champion it and knowing where it was happening. I mean, this wasn't happening in another state. It wasn't happening in Washington down the street. It was happening at the nation's capital during a session of Congress to certify the Electoral College. It doesn't get any worse than that. And so that when I think about that and I think about how this is going to be chronicled in history, and more importantly, that our international partners have lost all faith in us. I'm sure you heard this this morning. Secretary Pompeo was supposed to have a meeting with some of our, I'll say, international partners, because some of them are former partners, and they told him they're not meeting with him. Right, I saw that. They were like, yeah, don't bother. <laughs> so we've lost our place. Yeah, it's, a, it's we've sad. Been described, we, we've been described recently as we are no longer the if you will, castle on top of the hill. And, and you know, that's the, that's the, 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 the heartache for me is what this has done 
to not only the American psyche, but what it's done for our place in the world. You know, the idea of America being the beacon, the gold standard of a democracy, the shining city on a hill mm -hmm. being extinguished now because of Donald Trump disgusts me. And this is what we warned about those of us who were against Donald Trump from the very beginning, particularly mm -hmm. the never Trump Republicans like myself. We warned this would happen. And so many of those were other Republicans who were too cowardice to stand up and say no. Um, allowed this to happen. Rick Wilson says, you know, he wrote the book, Everything Trump Touches Dies. Mm -hmm. And little did we know it would be the shining light of American democracy on an international stage would be in the crosshairs and potentially wither on the vine and die under his leadership or lack thereof. It's, it's astonishing how far we've fallen in just four years of Donald Trump. Well, you're absolutely correct. And his embrace of unilateral isolationist practices and strategies, at the same time, Tara, gutting our infrastructure of our government along the way, the State Department is non-functional at this point. You've had a number of agencies that have acting heads of their departments and agencies because they weren't Senate confirmed. Cronies of his that have been appointed to significant positions, which are really troubling to people like me in the Defense Department. So we have a lot of work to do going forward. And I was very pleased to see our international partners reach out to President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris upon knowing that they had won the election to say we're looking forward to joining you and working together again. Absolutely, it can't come fast enough. Um, you know, I have a countdown that I have on my <laughs> on my dry erase board in my office in my house, where every day I change it down, count it down another day. And my uh -huh. mom, my mom was here for the holidays uh, from Jersey. And she, on the last day she was here, she wrote, hurry up <laughs> on the in marker on the board. Um, and I was like, yeah, mom, I feel you on that. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the idea that the, our, our, our operational capacity has been diminished is concerning to me as we head into the inauguration. Um, and um, I've mentioned many times, people who listen to me on a regular basis know that my husband's a federal officer and he's been involved in many of these types of events over the, his 20 year career. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned that it's a national designated a national special security event, which is significant because that means that certain um, agent interagency coordination mechanisms are activated basically. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe it's the secret service who takes the lead on those. Um, uh, they did for the Olympics, uh, when they were here on us soil, they've done it. They do it for the UN general assembly that comes in. Um, they do it for the inauguration. What is the difference going into this inauguration from inaugurations in the past? Because we've seen to, you know, there's a template and we have it down pretty well. We haven't had any incidents during an inauguration. I don't think ever. That's correct. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. What is the difference going into this one? Because it sure as hell ain't routine. <laughs> well, the, the, diff, the difference, Tara, is that we are not going to see a seamless transition of administration. We have 
a an administration departing, still refusing to acknowledge what has happened with a huge following of people that believe that's true to the point where the outgoing president has decided not even to be present. That's the difference. And with all of that, credible and, and actual intelligence to suggest the threat level is unprecedented, not just at the inauguration, but at every single state capital in the country. So this is a monumental undertaking that we have to deal with. And it's going to be, obviously, it's underway. Um, let's just be clear. We are actively engaged in a counterterrorism operation domestically. And, I, and I'm not saying that flippantly. That is exactly what's going on right now. So what is keeping you up at night as we approach the inauguration? What's keeping me up at night are two things. Number one, are the inf as we discussed previously, the infiltration of law enforcement and military by people who are part of this movement. And number two, the level to which states that have laws in place, like California and I understand now at least the Michigan Capitol State House, which I don't understand why you'd need to carry a weapon into the state house, but that's just another conversation. Right. Um, the states that have those laws, the extent to which they will enforce those laws. I would think that if I were going to walk down the street in L.A. with a rifle, that I would be arrested. I am hoping that no one in the states that at least have the laws in place, I hope they have a zero tolerance for that leading up to January 20th. Those are, that's what keeps me up at night. What also keeps me up at night is the degree of sophistication or organization that has probably going to be increased if we have another incident. As you've been watching, as, as, as have I, that with all due respect to the disorganization and mob mentality that took place on January 6th, there were coordinated efforts of, you, of groups of people. As you look at the video, I, I remember one distinctly where about seven guys that looked like they were part of the SEAL team that were dressed the same, same helmets, same load-bearing vests, moving through the crowd as if they had all worked together before. Mm -hmm. People with earpieces were spotted. That is what concerns me is the level of improvement that will take place at a second wave if we have it because of the lessons learned on January 6th. And they are operating not like any other terrorist organization we've dealt with internationally before. They always learn they're adaptive adversaries. And that's why they drove a truck under the World Trade Center in 1993. And when they realized they couldn't do that eight years later, they flew aircraft into the building. You know, it's um, it, it really is a a scary thought that there that January 6th wasn't the end that they were not deterred because the response to it has been tepid in my opinion from the powers that be which mm -hmm. is why the um the act of impeaching Trump again for his role in all of this was so important to send a message now you know Sometimes it looks like they're pussyfooting around what's taken a week. Plus, you know, why isn't the Senate in session? And how is it possible that there are Republicans still rationalizing this? You know, why is there still only a handful of them, um, even though it happened to them in their in their house, literally? 
um, still trying to diminish this. You know, we, we a week in, we still haven't heard directly in a public briefing from the FBI director and the mm -hmm. uh, uh, acting attorney general, which is mm -hmm. insane. And that just shows me there's a certain level of unseriousness. I don't know that people understand how freaking serious that event was and how much worse it could have been and what we're facing moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about the type of groups? If you are familiar with them, I think you are. Um, some of the examples of some of these right wing extremist groups that have emerged and what they what their belief system is, because I want my listeners to understand how insane and dangerous and committed these people are. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I always limit, but I'm happy to do it today. I always limit, um, if you will, giving these folks more notoriety, but I think we have to. Um, you know, obviously the Proud Boys have gotten a big shout out from the president. Um, and, and let's make no mistake here, although they have their what, what my friends call one not black, not white guy who leads them. Yeah. Um, they are a white supremacist, violent extremist organization designated so by a, a number of, of groups across the country, including the ADL and the Southern Poverty Law Center. I mean, they are who they are. Um, you know, Patriot Front, um, the old style groups like the Klan. More importantly, I want to talk about not just these groups who we all know. And of course, you've got three percenters and you've got Oath Keepers who who suggest that they are not part of that because and they have different factions. And see, that's why this is so dangerous. You've got factions of those groups who who support and defend the Constitution. You've got factions of those groups that are white nationalists. And so they have their own infighting. But when we see them coalesce, as we did in Charlottesville and obviously on January 6th, we see them coalesce around one issue. That's when it gets really mm -hmm. dangerous. What's more important, Tara, is the transnational component to this. Um, as, as we talked the other day, there's a, a group called Adam Waffen Division, and they're, and they're an offshoot of a neo-Nazi organization largely based in Europe, but they've got footing here, and they call themselves the base. Obviously, it, it, you know, it's, it's ironic, and I always say coincidence takes a lot of planning, Coincidentally, the base, if you translate into Arabic, is Al-Qaeda, mm -hmm. and they are a group that trains here. And what's really interesting about them, they have adopted the ISIS playbook. So let's go back a moment and, and look at Al-Qaeda. So Al-Qaeda used to be off the grid, hard to identify. Nobody knew how to join. Nobody knew who was really a part of their mid-level management. They vetted people. And then ISIS comes and flips the script. They decided to have a website tell people how to join, tell people who they are, tell them what their plans are, pay their fighters. We jokingly say in the counterterrorism world that Al-Qaeda took the Ivy League approach to selection and ISIS took the public school approach to selection, <laughs> where they were like, come one, come all. Right. So, But what's more important about that is that these transnational white supremacist groups are doing the same thing. They are on social media channels, talking about their objectives, talking about how you can join, vetting their people, having meetups, training in the middle of nowhere in states across the country, paramilitary training, and giving each other equipment going forward. So this is a very organized effort. It has been for quite some time. You know, I was in the Bureau, started in the Bureau years ago, and we had compound battles with these folks. Ruby Ridge, Whidbey Island, Waco. Mm -hmm. I mean, those same types of groups now, with all due respect, on steroids, and for no other reason due to their weaponry capacity, 
that has now taken control of their movements and they have a leader in the president of the United States. And they have a way to communicate, well, at least they did, um, much more easily than in the 1990s. There was no That's Twitter, right. Parler, Facebook, Gab, 8chan, all the other um, ways that we can, uh, cell phones where you can text and, and mm -hmm. telegram and, uh, I mean, telegraph or whatever it is, you know, WhatsApp, all these apps, they, the ease in which they can communicate and organize is also, I would think, a contributing factor to what makes them um, so dangerous now because they it's easier for them to organize. They all don't have to be in the woods somewhere in Idaho in a training camp. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, what's interesting is that the encrypted apps and things that they're using um, are the same kinds of methodologies we see international groups use, and they've gotten a lot more sophisticated. You know, before the Charlottesville attack, the organizers of that rally, if you will, uh, were recruiting young tech-savvy people who knew more about online capacities to their organizations so they could do just that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody knows, but those groups, meaning the white supremacists, they infiltrated the counter-protest movements before that event took place. They were attending their meetups. They were going to their strategies. They posted photos of people who were going to be counter-protesters and gave it to the police. They posted photos of the plans for the carpools that would take place that day. They knew who was going to attack them that day and said to the police, this is who you're going to have to arrest. It was all done because of their ability to communicate online and to share the information. That's crazy. They literally were doing counterintelligence work and surveillance and recon um, in ways that I don't think people realize that, you know, we, we joke that they on January 6th that it was a bunch of redneck rubes and it's mm -hmm. a good thing that they were or else it could have been way worse but that was in our immediate reaction since then we found out as you mentioned that there was a lot more coordination there were groups of people that had tactical gear were moving in tactical formations that they had tunnels um, and ma uh, maps of the tunnels and, and things uh, to the, the Capitol complex there were mm -hmm. flex ties you know that there was more organization online chatter about taking hostages or, you know, killing people. I mean, I mean, the idea of this and it's being swept under the rug is just like, oh, well, yeah, that <laughs> happened. That's too bad. Let's move on and, and find unity. And, and impeachment is what's dividing us. Get the hell right. out of here. <laughs> you got to be fucking kidding me. Did you right. not see? Are you guys not listening? Are you not paying attention? Are you not getting the briefings? Like, why are you not getting this, people? Republicans, I'm talking to you. Um, I... I, I, uh, I I wanted to ask you about the imagery of the National Guard that we've seen um, and their footprint here in Washington, D.C. In the lead up to the inauguration, I saw photographs of of National Guardsmen sleeping in the hallways of Congress <laughs> on the floor of the Capitol Visitor Center. And, uh -huh. you know, it, it upset me because I'm like, A, we're putting them in harm's way. We have a freaking global pandemic still going on. Um, B, they should be out there helping with the vaccine distribution, not um, having to guard the Capitol in, in a militarized zone like this. I mean, there would always be a certain presence during an inauguration, but this is, we're talking 20,000 National Guardsmen, four times plus more troops here than there are in Afghanistan right now, mm -hmm. apparently. Mm -hmm. 
What do you well, think when you see that? Because I feel like I'm like, this is not America. Well, you're absolutely correct. And I was chuckling when you first started because my wife was she were walking through our kitchen this morning. And she says and she saw all those National Guardsmen sleeping on the floor. She says, what are you doing? And I had to say to her, I said, listen, when I was on SWAT, we went on missions. You slept wherever and right. whenever you could. Yep. <laughs> and I said, they're sleeping on the floor because they don't know how many hours they're going to be awake. Um, but to your point, the fact that, as you've mentioned, we've got more troops here than we have overseas to protect our own country should certainly be demonstrative of the level of seriousness and the threat level we currently face. I, like you, am watching the impeachment debate, and in a smaller caption on the screen, I'm watching the National Guard outside the United States Capitol. Yep. So that's the imagery that we have. You know, if it wasn't serious enough, back to your point about what's going on, it's now thought that those explosives that were going to be placed around the Capitol were going to be diversion devices to take law enforcement there so they couldn't respond to what was going to happen in the Capitol. There was a plan in place. There was a strategy that was going to be played out. And it had to include what we thought what was going to happen over the summer and got thwarted in Michigan and Virginia with the, if you will, apprehension of members of our government and then possibly doing them harm. So we right. have to look at that. The kidnapping I'm, of the, just to be clear, the kidnapping attempt of the governor of Michigan and of uh, the governor of Virginia that were thwarted. The Whitner, Whitmer case got a lot more attention than the Northam um, case here in Virginia, yes. but you be you know because of what we saw at the Capitol and um, kind of it was like a mini preview of what they were planning to do on the sixth. What we saw in Michigan and their concern now she's their concern for her life and and the safety of the Michigan State Capitol. Um, but yeah, that that those were just microcosms of what happened or what was they were potentially planning on the sixth and potentially planning coming up in this let's storm all 50 capitals. Right. And I don't want to leave this conversation, Tara, without mentioning one thing that I just find unconscionable. I watched members of the House who refused to walk through metal detectors after the attack last week. Oh, yeah. Who are, who, and one of them pushed a Capitol Police officer. Several members walked around the metal detector. I got to tell you something. If I were a member, there's no way I'm sitting in the chamber with them. And I got to tell you, as a former assistant chief of police at LAX, when I wasn't in uniform, I had to go through the metal detector like anybody else. If I was traveling, I was unarmed because that was the law and that was the rule. So if they don't want to go through a metal detector, that's a huge problem. Right. What? Why? Why don't the rules apply to them? You know, Mr. Law and Order Congressman. Right. Um, right. And what are you? What? What? What is the problem? And um, I forget which member it was who said that they were concerned about sitting in the chamber with their own members because mm -hmm. of that. That mm -hmm. have we ever since maybe, you know, the lead up to the Civil War, have we ever had this level of distrust among colleagues in Congress? Never. I Never. mean, this is it. it and, and this is what we're this is not going away, you know, and that's no. why this debate, the, the impeachment debate is an important one because it exposes people. We see where they stand. And I know for the Lincoln Project, we have something called Abe is Watching. Um, we're paying attention to who these people are, because in the issue of transparency, the American people need to know who the hell's representing them and what right. side of this fight they're on. Are they on Definitely. the side of America, on the side of the Constitution, 
on the side of democracy or are, are they on the side of Trumpism and the malignancy of that and insurrection, sedition and anti-democratic efforts? It's a pretty clear choice and the American people need to know who those people are and hold them accountable. You're absolutely correct and it's why I love watching your show because you just stated it more eloquently and precisely than anybody else could have. Oh, I appreciate that. I don't know. I don't know about that, but <laughs> I appreciate the praise. And, uh, um, you know, you are, are someone who articulates what's going on in a way that I think is easy for people to understand. And you bring the credibility and experience with you to back up what you're talking about. And before Thank we you. go, I, I just don't I don't want to end it on this <laughs> on this really intense note, because um, I, I don't want people to freak out. I want them to pay mm -hmm. attention. And I want them to be uh, vigilant. Um, as my grandfather always said, I, I talk about my, my captain grandfather, my police captain <laughs> grandfather, who always taught me to pay attention. And up until he was 90, God bless him when he passed away, every time I would visit with him or see him and leave, he would say, all right, schnookums, pay attention, you know, my whole <laughs> life. So <laughs> I'm very paying attention to whatever that is, you know, it encompasses a lot of things is a mantra that I live by and, and, and why I feel it's so important to bring information to folks because when you don't pay attention, a mm -hmm. lot of bad things can happen. So that's right. That's why I want to do that. So on a lighter note as, um, and thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. Um, this is a, a fantastic conversation and I could talk to you all day, but we all have things to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're fighting for a democracy here. Um, you, uh, one, I want you to tell a very funny story or a cool story about your time on FBI SWAT because people are fascinated with that kind of stuff and we'd love to hear about it. And two, um, we have a friend in common, uh, Nika Noor, who was a contestant on the show Spy Games, which was on Bravo this year or last year recently, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that you played a role in um, on the show. You were a part of it, and uh, which I think is pretty cool. So a cool SWAT story, and what was it like to work on Spy Games? Oh, God, a cool SWAT story. Come on, um, you know you've got some. Oh, God, well, I'm good. <laughs> it's going to be mixed, and, and it, hopefully it doesn't alarm anybody, but long story short, we got called out on a mission one day, uh, barricaded suspect, uh, robbery suspect, bank robbery, and he had shot through the door at the agents who arrived, and needless to say, we got called out. And I don't know if you know, but I was a, the reason I know the governor, the former governor, so well is, is Schwarzenegger. I was a that would that would be Governor Schwarzenegger. So That's people correct. know so, <laughs> the gov. I was a, I was a competitive bodybuilder for many years, and, and we're still very close friends. And he used to always say to me, you know, Earl, you've won a lot of titles, but you never won them, Mr. Universe. So anyway, <laughs> um, I, we were on a SWAT mission, and we were set up, and and we were getting ready to, to have to deal with this person who had barricaded himself, and and I was training for a contest at the time. And so I'm sitting on my car and all my SWAT gear and I'm eating out of my Tupperware and, and this reporter comes up and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm eating. She says, well, aren't you gonna go in there and, and get that guy who just shot at your agents? And I said, yeah, he's not going anywhere. She says, well, aren't you nervous and scared? I said, yeah, but right now I'm hungry. <laughs> That's funny, you know, because that humanizes what you guys do. You know, people see the mo movie version of of SWAT team members and, you know, mm -hmm. SEAL team guys, special ops guys. And um, but you're still human and you still have to eat. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And if you know anything about bodybuilding, the most important 
part of what we do is what we put in our mouth. So right. I have to eat on the clock. That is fun. That's funny. Um, I have a funny, quick uh, Schwarzenegger story too. So my mom was in um, show business when she was younger. And she uh, worked on a lot of commercials. She danced on Broadway and the oh, wow. Atlantic City Steel Pier. Um, she was an extra in The Godfather. And she also worked on uh, Arnold's first movie um, when he, uh, what was it? It wasn't, was it Conan? Was that his first movie? Well, Co Conan was one of the first big ones, but of course it was Pumping Iron back in 1973. Yeah, it was, it wasn't Pumping Iron. It might've been one of the first Conans um, okay. when he was uh, riding a horse in New York. Was it like Conan in New York or something? Oh, was some you're kinda... talking about, that was a Hercules in Hercules New York. Hercules or New York. Yes. That's it. Yes, yes, yes. Oh um, my God. Yes. He, he doesn't remember that film, but go ahead. Right. <laughs> my, so my mom remembers that and he she said that he could barely speak a, a, a sentence in English at the time. Correct. Um, and how awkward he looked riding that horse, you know, this big, <laughs> this big guy and all this, you know, bodybuilder on the horse. And she goes, and it was, it was hysterical. And, and, you know, nobody thought that he would become what he became, um, from that movie. That's for sure. But yeah, she remembers, yeah. she remembers that. Um, yeah, she's got a lot of funny stories. My mom's awesome. But anyway, um, and Schwarzenegger mentioned you actually, um, in a, an Atlantic piece that he wrote, uh, earlier in 2020 when the, BLM protests were going on. He used you as an example of someone um, who was uh, an accomplished law enforcement officer who was black that still feared getting that phone call late at night, um, worrying that it might be your son or a family member um, becoming the next potential hashtag, which I well, thought was I... a very intense, um, you know, point to make. But go ahead. No, thank you. And if I could share one more story, sure. you know, Arnold's story. Um, Long story short, I had gone through the process of applying to the bureau and to physical and the written, and and uh, I was a Santa Monica police officer at the time, and that's how Arnold and I got to be so close, because I trained at the same gym, and I wasn't sure, so I went to Arnold's house, I was on duty, I, he says, hey, what's going on? I said, I got a question for you. He says, yeah, come on in. So I'm sitting there in uniform in his living room, he says, what's up? I said, well, I got a chance to possibly go to the FBI. And he says, yeah. And I said, he says, what's your concern? I said, well, hey, come on, man. I said. I live here with you, you know, six blocks from the beach. We ride motorcycles on the weekend. I'm competing in bodybuilding. <laughs> you know, I got a, a sports car. I said, I don't want to go anywhere else. He says, what's the worst thing that could happen? I said, well, they could transfer me to Alaska. And he started laughing. <laughs> so he said, sit down. Let me tell you something. He said, I know world leaders. I know the president. I know the Pope. I know people all over the world. He said, ask me how many FBI agents I know. I said, how many? He says, one. He says, what does that tell you? He said, listen to me. You go to the bureau, and if when you leave the bureau, you can do anything you want. And he was right. That was fantastic advice. I'm glad you listened to him. <laughs> and so here we are today after all these years where I'm director of a center at USC's School of Public Policy and we have a center in his name, the Schwarzenegger Institute, in the same School of Public Policy, and we still see each other all the time. <laughs> Whoever would have thought, right? From bodybuilding right. to um, to that, and that, and oh, I, before I let you go, I, we have to talk about your um, the database, the Lewis database that you're working on, um, that you. I think is in, really important for people to know because um, you're doing such great work there. So talk talk about what that is. Explain it. Well, thank you. We have a national unified 
database called the Lewis Registry, named after Representative John Lewis. And the Lewis acronym stands for Law Enforcement Work Inquiry System. It is going to document police officers who have been fired or resigned in lieu of misconduct. It has been endorsed by community stakeholders, by law enforcement officials. In fact, I had a meeting with, with chiefs across the country just yesterday. It had We did a national survey. 80% of Americans support a registry that will have this information in it. It was 74% Republicans, 76% independents, and 90% Democrats. So it's got bipartisan support. Congress member Bass is championing this as part of the Justice, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And, the, and ironically and coincidentally, Tara, the first person to write a check to support the effort was who? Arnold Schwarzenegger. So we are hoping to, uh, we're creating this now. Um, it is something that I wholeheartedly believe in, especially with the enlightening information that's come because of, or say since January 6th regarding the complicity of law enforcement officers, not just on duty that day, but who attended and participated in that insurrection. So it's something that we're going to do going forward. There will be a research component to it where we will be putting publications out so we can hopefully thwart those issues with officers who might be going down that roadway. But of course, we'll have a home for the ones who wind up getting fired. I hate to say this, but unfortunately, in many states, you can get fired for misconduct and go to another department. And there are five states, of which California is one of them, where you can get fired and you keep your state certification for three more years. Yeah, that's unacceptable. So lastly, I'll just say, going back to our home state of New Jersey, there's a poster child in New Jersey. He's 31 years old. He's on his ninth police department. He's been fired by three. And the reason we, you don't know about him is he hasn't killed anybody yet. He should not be a police officer. And that's what we're trying to stop. Well, kudos to you for that. It is absolutely necessary. And, you know, I'm still friends with um, many police officers at many levels, including my hometown chief of police in Paramus, New Jersey, one of the best. <laughs> um, and he mentions to me the importance of recruitment, of vetting, of accountability. He mm -hmm. said, if we don't police our own, then we have a problem. And the more that we see law enforcement officers policing themselves and rooting out the bad apples, the better. Because then then is, is that's where you really see um, <clears throat> the level of respect and change that you need to have. You know, it's easy for people outside, but there is that there is that camaraderie in that blue line, um, that blue wall also that um, has to be penetrated if you want to see real systemic change because um, otherwise you're not gonna get it. So when you have buy-in from people within the, within that community, I feel confident that there will be a change that matters. And, and this is an example of that. And you, my, you, sir, are an example of New Jersey's finest. So I'm proud to share the, our, our home <laughs> state together. Keep up the great work. And um, for people, tell people how they can follow you, um, how they can follow your work, because I know my listeners um, and they're going to want to follow Dr. Errol Southers. Well, thank you so much. On Twitter, they can follow me at, at E Southers. That's E-S-O-U-T-H-E-R-S, capital H-V-E for Homegrown Violent Extremism. So at E Southers H-V-E. I really appreciate it. Uh, if they want to know more about our center, uh, we're the Safe Communities Institute. It's real simple. It's S-C-I 
www.usc.edu. And you can find out about all the research we're doing, the educational programs that we put on, and most importantly, our Lewis Registry, which is growing every day. Thank you so much. You are a great American. You give me hope. Um, and uh, knowing that there are folks like you out there at the helm trying to make a difference and uh, keep us safe. Dr. Errol Southers, thank you so much. Thank you, Tara. An honor and a privilege. I really appreciate it. You're welcome back anytime. Again, a big thank you to uh, Dr. Errol Southers. Um, he's such a great guy. I could talk to him all day. Um, and he does amazing work, policing work. And I told you, he's a badass. Anyway, um, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Um, I just ask that everyone stay safe because COVID is still raging. That's a whole different subject that we haven't really had a chance to talk about because of everything else. But please stay safe. Wear your mask. Get your vaccine if you're eligible. My husband, um, being a first responder, was able to get both vaccine shots already. No side effects. So happy about that. And um, also, I just want folks to just pray that we have a safe, smooth, non-eventful inauguration next week. So I'll see you then. And thank you for listening. Follow the podcast on at honestly underscore Tara on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at Tara Setmayer and on Instagram for some fun stuff at the Tara Setmayer. And don't forget to check out the Lincoln Projects, The Breakdown with me and Rick Wilson on Lincoln Project TV, streaming across all the Lincoln Project channels, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. That's every Tuesday and Thursday at 9 p.m. live. See you next time. Thank you.